Hi, welcome back to AR Zone. I'm Carolyn Bailey. And I'm Christopher Sebastian. These continuing interviews on intersectional veganism and related issues are in association with VegFest UK. In today's interview, Sebastian and I are joined by Robert Grillo. Robert is an activist, an author, and a speaker. He's the director of Free From Harm, which he founded in 2009 to expose animal agriculture's impact on other animals, on vulnerable communities, and on the environment. Robert's first book, Farm to Fable, The Fictions of Our Animal Consuming Culture, was published this year, and he joins us today to speak about the book in general and about some of its more intersectional elements. Robert, thanks for joining us today. Oh, well, thanks so much, Carolyn. It's great to be with you guys. You're welcome. Robert, you talk about the gross inequalities and social injustices in the world, which are rooted in racism, sexism, classism, and of course, speciesism in chapter seven of your book. This implies that the best or perhaps the only way to move forward is by adopting the idea of alliance politics, or in other words, the animal movement needs to urgently reach out to other progressive movements. Is that right? Yes, I do. And I think, you know, especially in today's, you know, political climate with the devastating news of our of our election, it's all the more important than ever uh, that we find those commonalities and we approach this in, in an intersectional manner. Thanks, Robert. And in in terms of reaching out to other movements, there's there's a little bit of criticism that I hear from within the movement about doing that. You know, other movements don't reach out to us. Why should we move out? reach out to them. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I don't think that criticism is founded. I think that uh, as part of what I explore in the book, that many of the narratives and fictions that are used to denigrate and exploit and marginalize animals uh, as consumables are also applying to um, vulnerable human groups as well. So Many of the same tactics and, and stories and narratives are used. So I see it as very much, um, very much something that can't even really be separated. Um, I mean, of course, there's differences, right? And there's important differences. And I'm not, you know, certainly not uh, suggesting that there aren't. But it's really striking that the similarities from the standpoint of the exploitation industries and the exploitative mindset in the narratives uh and fictions that they use. Yeah, I agree, absolutely. Robert, in a recent interview with Marlene Narrow, you said that the situation was urgent in the sense that planet Earth literally doesn't have much time left. Doesn't that mean that the vegan community needs to take intersectionality much more seriously so we can build alliances necessary to bring about radical change? Yeah, most definitely. You know, not too long ago, I sat on a panel about activism and there was a young woman from the Humane League there talking about how we should approach things, you know, incrementally or that we could do it in steps. It just seems to me like uh, the urgency, especially with, you know, someone like Trump in office and, and the people that he's looking to bring into his uh, inner circle. Um, I mean, I've, I've yet to see anything quite that disturbing. And, to me, that's that's a sign of of great urgency. Yes, Robert, you often speak about trivialising the lives of other animals, and I think this could also mean invisibilising other animals in our advocacy. 
There's a small group within the advocacy community who refer to themselves as effective altruists. Do you think we're helping or we're harming the cause for other animals when we focus on human-centric issues like reducitarianism, for example, and using other animals in order to show that we don't need to use other animals? With reducitarianism, there's several problems with it that I think um, that some of which I, I kind of explore in the book, but I would suggest, I would say one of the big ones is that it assumes, and I would say rather arrogantly, that animals are not just objects of consumption. And reducitarianism actually takes exploitation to a whole new level. It means that animals can now be exploited as bargaining tools for animal advocacy to broker deals with their exploiters or with the public. So, you know, my question is, who are we as their supposed advocates to negotiate the use, and I mean any use, of their bodies or to negotiate the level of their suffering or victimization? And I mean, what other victim advocates would find this even remotely ethical? I just, you know, can't think of any. Yeah, look, I I agree with you. I know on the Reducitarian website, they actually have recipes that have other animals in the recipes. I don't know what message that sends and I don't know why reducitarianism has anything to do with the vegan community there's there seems to be this call for 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 us as vegans to encourage the consumption and the use of other animals in order to ridiculously in my opinion show that we don't need to consume and use other animals I mean that just sounds way too confusing it, it speaks to the kind of deceptive nature of the tools that I think uh, the marketing type of tools that reducitarians and other type of advocates are using um, that are they're kind of borrowing from the animal exploitation industry. That's something that I talk about in the book about how, you know, marketing is the primary tool of deception of the of the ex- uh, exploitation industries. So it's really not something that you know, if we when we communicate and we use strategic communications, I think we have to be very careful not to invoke their tactics. And the last thing we want to do is deceive. We have a very important truth to expose, and um, we have many compelling ways to do so. We never have to trick or deceive or ask for something less. It, we ask for what it what it is that we we want the vision of the world that we want to see, and uh, people will fall in place based on on where they are uh, mentally with that message. Right. Thanks, Robert. In the book, you speak about some of the fictions, as you call them, of why we continue to eat and use other animals. One of those, I think, is consent. Can you speak a little bit about the fictions in general and what you mean by that? And one that particularly interested me was the consent one. Yeah, the the consent fiction is the first one that I talk about in the book because it really is, like, for me, the most foundational fiction. Because without consent, then you can't, you know, you don't have humane washing because basically consent portrays this idea that animals are just willing participants in whatever it is that we'd like to do with them. So once we believe in consent, then use is no longer an issue. Use is no longer 
on the table for discussion. It just becomes a matter of then how do we treat them? How do we best treat them? Um, and so that's why the discussion today is so focused on humane washing, because I think consent has become a fiction that is so embedded and so unexamined that we just automatically assume that there's nothing wrong with using animals because they're consensual. So that's something I think that that we really have to kind of factor into our discussions and, and activism with, with people that, um, wait a minute, you know, before we start talking about, like, better ways to exploit and kill, um, we might want to think about, like, the actual use of animals and, and whether or not they clearly show signs that they, they don't want to be used against their will. So to ignore that, that fact is, is what I mean by consent. Thank you. Robert, you mentioned propaganda that's used to oppress inferior groups, saying that it's a concerted assault on the identity of these groups. And you cite as an example the huge advertising budget of Cargill. Mm -hmm. You're tapping into research on dehumanisation and depersonalisation processes and focus on the issue of invisibility. It seems to me you're seeing a direct link between the propaganda used against human groups and that used against other animals. Is that accurate? Yes, I, I think that's true. I, I use one example in my presentation um, because, you know, I'm going back to uh, Gramsci, the time of Gramsci uh, when he was in prison by Mussolini and um, <clears throat> introduced some very important concepts for us that we could actually use now, one of which is called cultural hegemony. And it's kind of cultural tyranny. It's the use of propaganda to control the public mind. And um, so during his time, uh, an example in the fascist period would have been like the euthanasia or mercy killing program. So I use that as an example of, of how propaganda worked at, in, in that time. And then I show, you know, in the next slide how animal agriculture is using humane washing in a strikingly similar way by showing us, you know, feel-good images of happy family farmers and telling us feel-good stories about, you know, how wonderful their lives are, how hard they work, how, how the animals are, how happy they are. And then, you know, I just use both of these examples to show that that in both of these cases, propaganda is concealing institutionalized violence and oppression against an inferior group uh, that's deemed inferior um, and is sacrificed for the, some greater good, for the benefit of a superior group. Thanks, Robert. Going back to Chapter 7, um, you seem to be saying that the best way to change people's behaviours is to appeal to their beliefs and their values, presumably to get them to understand how they really care about other animals in order to get them to stop using them. You um, dismiss the approaches of some advocates that focus instead on getting small changes in behaviour first as a way of opening the door to the possibilities of greater changes later on. Do you right. have any evidence in the form of, say, you know, peer-reviewed published articles or, or whatever that support the idea that people will change when their core beliefs are challenged. I mean, the question is, doesn't the vast majority of research in this area reach the actual opposite conclusion? Uh, no, I don't think so, because um, I think the book and the, 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 the fact that 
corporations spend billions of dollars on appealing directly to our beliefs and values about consuming animals and that they do this year after year after year to reinforce that those beliefs in our minds is a testament to just how powerful our beliefs and values shape our behavior in this case. If they didn't think it was useful or effective or um, having an impact, then they wouldn't be they wouldn't be spending this kind of money. So I think that as far as peer-reviewed science, I know I don't cite any specifically in the book, but just coming from a marketing communications branding background and seeing how much energy and effort goes into this, um, these appeals to our beliefs and values, that that in itself is probably the, the most powerful testament we have, that, it, that, it's, that it, there's an, a very important connection between beliefs and behavior. A very important connection, which I, I would say is being sorely overlooked in much of the advocacy today. Um, where can people get a hold of you and where can people get a hold of the book? I can be reached at robert at freefromharm.org uh, by email. And the book is available on the veganpublishers.com website. I believe it's internationally available there. It's also available on Amazon. Um, in the U.S. and the U.K. Thanks, Robert. Is there anything that you'd like to leave with our listeners in regards to your work and, and the ideas behind the book? Sure. Well, yeah, one last thing I would say is that, you know, from a better understanding of the fictions of animal consumption, the first thing we talked about is that there's a very important connection between belief and behavior, but also... Another important thing is that truth matters immensely for us as, as activists because what we're actually uh, struggling against is an industry that is built upon the lies and fictions about how it victimizes animals. So truth for me is the core of our advocacy or should be. And um, you know, I talk about the different kinds of truths that matter in the book. I go into a little bit more detail on that. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing. You're doing amazing work on behalf of both humans and other animals. Well, thank you so much for having me. Very I'm never